Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Friends, let us put aside our good works and remember that we do sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so let us pray together and then into the silence of our own hearts. And so we say, Sovereign God, we confess that we have not turned away from sin. We follow the crowd around you, but stand apart, keeping our distance. We ask for your mercy and favor, but begrudge your blessing to others. Forgive us, God of grace. Come to us and save us, for without you we are lost, but in you our lives are found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me so wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from Luke. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, 
he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord's, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Not long ago, one of our area newspapers published a story about a young couple's travel to an adjoining state to visit some family. They stopped at a roadside park so the woman could nurse their infant child, and the man got out of the car and walked over to a scenic outlook nearby. There he admired the view of a river and the fall foliage beyond. Within a few minutes, a state police car stopped and checked out the scene and to ask for identification. Running the man's name through a database, the officer discovered a match with someone on a terrorist watch list. Within minutes, the man was handcuffed and his family detained. They were released more than four hours later after the name on the list was found to be an error. I knew what was going to happen, the man later reported. It's not the first time I've been stopped because of the color of my skin. He'd been a U.S. citizen for more than 20 years, his wife equally so. When fear paralyzes us, it's tempting that all could be well with the world if we could just organize the world into good people and those who are not. Like hoarder busters tackling a house piled high with random paraphernalia, hoping to discard the stuff we no longer want, we tend to label individuals according to our stereotypes. We organize them into their proper categories. We all do this. Welfare moms and soccer moms and suburbanites and fraternity brothers and sorority sisters, hunters, tree huggers, engineers, graduate students, addicts, football players, vegetarians, vegans, CEOs and CFOs, attorneys, engineers, teenagers, artists, Students, activists, addicts, football players, artists and foreigners and single parents and runners and politicians and on and on our list go. And depending on our own particular context and perhaps depending on the labels we like to apply to ourselves, each of the categories can carry with it a positive or a negative assessment. From the Hebrew Bible that Dan read for us earlier, the prophet Habakkuk has a complaint that parallels our day. There's violence in the land and there's wrongdoing and trouble. Ruin and strife and contention are in his face. Blaming the other is widespread. Our prophet cries out for help. Habakkuk sounds the alarm but God doesn't appear instantaneously. The Lord's answer then sounds at first more disastrous than the problem. Habakkuk runs to the ramparts, to the watchtower on the city walls, and here's a vision in which the projections are for exile and destruction, for massive upheaval and flows of refugees. 
Yet the prophet stands there still at his watch post, waiting to see the fullness of God's response. And there comes a vision of justice for the appointed time. Yes, the present may linger. Wait, wait, a new thing is coming. The delay will not be endless. And in the meantime, the proud will continue their ways. Their greed will not be satisfied, but another time will come. Meanwhile, the righteous will strive to live by faith. As the story in Luke begins, Zacchaeus is on the wrong side of justice. He's just a short, bad man framed by his work and smothered by his own values. It's only when he takes to the sycamore tree to gain a new perspective that things change. Just like the prophet Habakkuk ascended the defensive walls on the city to stand on the watchtower and gain a new perspective, Zacchaeus' tree-climbing escapade shifts the arc of his life. You know, I don't know, but I wonder if Luke doesn't really deep down inside want us to like Zacchaeus. Eventually, we come to like and respect him in the way that we become fond of the other rascals and rogues that populate the pages of the Bible. Initially, we think we're not supposed to like him because he is rich, and Luke's news about the rich is regularly bleak. They're the ones sent empty away, the ruined, the fools, the cold-blooded, and the ones less likely to enter God's kingdom than a camel is likely to squeeze through a needle's eye. We also know at this point in Luke's gospel that there is hope, for Jesus welcomes and receives those tax collectors. Zacchaeus, we know, is a chief tax collector, reaping profits from teams of assistant tax collectors, agents all working directly for him, all making him extremely wealthy and despised. Chief tax collectors were known for colluding with the powerful Roman Empire and taking advantage of ordinary people for their own personal gain. Think payday lending agent. His occupation places Zacchaeus in the company of the greedy, like the man who wants to tear down his own barns and build bigger ones so he may hoard his excess crops. Even the crowds recognize Zacchaeus as a sinner, and no doubt they label him with a capital S. We imagine Zacchaeus as a total scoundrel, but Luke won't let us. He frames Zacchaeus as an individual, a child of God. He gives us his name, his whole occupation, the whole truth. He tells us that he is short that he has a home and a table. He also shows him to be so eager to see Jesus that he scrambles up a tree. Others have compared his tree climb to an auto executive shimmying up a telephone pole for the Thanksgiving parade in Detroit. If you're a filmmaker, you might cast Kristen Chenoweth or Danny DeVito in this role. Zacchaeus might not have had a camel through a needle's eye chance of getting past God's door. But it's not because he's unlovable. 
In Him, we understand what Jesus sees in all of us, and specifically what He saw in another rich man, one who didn't make it. So along comes Jesus, and He stops the parade that Emily told us about. And He looks up at Zacchaeus, thereby tossing off the crowd's labels and insisting that they and we reassess our categories. By announcing a visit to Zacchaeus' house, Jesus forces the crowd to see this tax collector with fresh eyes. It's a bit of chaos and a bit of an ugly scene, for they, the crowd, cannot stop complaining about it and about the fact that Jesus would bend to sharing hospitality with such a person. Jesus rejects the common labels. Where they see selfishness, Jesus sees welcome. Where the crowd sees an outcast, Jesus sees him as a member of the family. Where they see lost and hopeless, Jesus sees found and redeemable. Jesus knows the whole reality about Zacchaeus. The labels are removed. There's no deception. And still Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Must stay today. And so off they go, the scoundrel and the one who is the Christ, heading straight for a table of grace and welcome. It's a most curious turnaround, I think. Flannery O'Connor, the Catholic novelist, once observed that most people come to faith by a means which the church does not allow else there would be no need of getting to her at all. However, this is true on the inside of the church as well, as the operation of the church is set up entirely for the sinner, which creates misunderstanding among the smug. We don't know what happens during this meal, but we can't imagine that at some point during the feast, Zacchaeus stands unscripted and spontaneously and commits himself to doing justice, seeking kindness, practicing mercy. Openly he repents. For Zacchaeus, justice immediately rolls down, down and out into the very community in which he raised his children. Down from the waters of the table of Jesus' acceptance to touch all. And the justice seems to flow in two directions. First, there's The sharing of wealth with his own community, his own friends, his own families. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And the second order of justice rolls out like this. It's about reparations. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Like Zacchaeus, we may awake one day to recognize that we too have participated in two overlapping forms of injustice. Systematic injustice, the broad embedded social injustices, the isms that plague our world, and personal, including our own dishonest choices. And Zacchaeus' responses demonstrate his aim and our possible aim to confront them both. He moves past the systematic injustice by sharing his wealth, offering his generosity now 
to the people of Jericho. And he moves also toward reconciliation and personal justice by making reparations and amends with the people he has exploited. The whole gospel unfolds in the story of Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this house. Pure grace and holy acceptance reshape a life warped into a relationship that's capable of reconciling the old differences and restoring broken bonds. Zacchaeus' words, I will give, I will pay, ring out with an abundance of welcome and embrace that are at the very core of what the church is all about. Today, salvation has come to this house. The story of Jesus and Zacchaeus suggests that salvation, ours and others, is both mutual and reciprocal. Yes, it shows up in the very presence of Jesus. Salvation happens when Jesus sees the unseeable, when Jesus finds those who try to hide so as not to have their sin exposed. Salvation comes. When Jesus regards those who think that salvation is certainly not for them, salvation comes. But salvation also shows up when we do what Jesus does himself. Welcome the other. Be with the other. Be known to the other. Salvation as solidarity. Salvation as worship. Salvation as compassion. Salvation as hospitality. In a recent column, The Power of the Dinner Table, New York Times columnist David Brooks tells the story of Kathy and David. They have a son named Santee, and they live in Washington, D.C., and Santee goes to D.C. public schools. Well, Santee had a friend who sometimes went to school hungry, so Santee invited his friend to come home and occasionally have dinner and stay at his house. That friend had a friend, and that friend had a friend, and now when you go to dinner at Kathy and David's on Thursday night, there might be 15 or 20 crammed around a table in their dining room. And later there'll be groups of them in the basement and sleeping in the small bedrooms upstairs. The kids who show up at Kathy and David's have endured the ordeals of modern poverty, Brooks right? Homelessness, hunger, abuse, sexual assault. Almost all of them have seen death firsthand to a friend, a sibling, a parent. It's anonymous for them to have a bed at home, Brooks writes. One 20-year-old woman came to dinner last week and said that this is the first time that she'd been around a family table since she was 11 years old. Poverty up close is so much more intricate and unpredictable than the picture of poverty you get from the national debates. I started going there two years ago, Brooks writes, hungry for something beyond the food. Every meal we go around the table and everybody has to say something that no one else in the room knows about them. Each meal we demonstrate our commitment to care for one another. I took my daughter once and on the way out she said, that's the warmest place I can ever imagine. The problems facing our country are deeper than labor participation rates or ISIS. It's a crisis of solidarity, a crisis of segmentation, a crisis of labels and of frames and of categories. 
It's a spiritual degradation and intimacy. The kids call Kathy and David mama and dad and are unfailingly polite, clear and wash the dishes and turn toward one another's love like plants toward the sun. They burst with big glowing personalities. The gift of Kathy and David is a gift of a complete intolerance of social distance, writes Brooks. Bill Milliken, a veteran youth activist, is often asked what programs turn kids' lives around. He said, I haven't seen one program turn a kid's life around. What changes people is relationships. Somebody willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of adolescence with them. Souls are not saved in bundles. Love, acceptance, grace, and forgiveness, those are the necessary forces. Salvation has come to this and to every house. We need to turn to each other's love and care and compassion like plants toward the sun. And we need to be that love and compassion, that salvation for others in which, toward which they might turn. Who better to create solidarity to remove the labels, to mend the boundaries and segmentation, to stimulate spiritual richness and depth in the national conversation than we in the church? Who better to practice in full view of the whole world the twin poles of grace and justice and to insist on the importance of intimacy here in the church? Salvation has come to this and every house this day. Thanks be to God, who is and always will be the love behind it all. Amen and amen. Let us unite our hearts and minds in prayer. God of grace and God of glory, our mighty fortress and our vision, our helper, our strength, and our stay, We come before you humbled that you know us by name and claim us as your own. We come before you grateful that you are present with us and to us yesterday, today, and tomorrow, amazed that you are patient with our stubbornness and our failings, thankful that your love for us never ends. Despite the ups and downs of life, the challenges that confront us, the events that knock us off track and rock our equilibrium, you are constant and faithful, steady and trustworthy. Whether we scramble to see you or have known you all our lives, your grace is evident if we just open our eyes. Give us clear sight of the way you would have us go, the courage to persevere, and an eagerness to be in the company of others who love and serve you. Help us walk alongside those in special need or to welcome another's care if our way is difficult. Give us sensitivity to different viewpoints and the unwavering desire to be kind and just. Hear our prayers for peace. God of all, peace for your needy world. Rather than seeing differences, enable us to celebrate our common humanity, to respect all, to work for the well-being of one another. We lift up our brothers and sisters in North Carolina and the Caribbean who continue to struggle 
in the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew, and we remember those in Italy whose lives were further devastated by last night's earthquake. Keep us sensitive to others and help us always act and react in love. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our risen Lord, who came and dwelt among us and who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.